Welcome to the Healing Place podcast, a space filled with inspirational stories of hope, along with practical advice for your healing journey. Your host is Terry Welbrock, trauma warrior, writer, speaker, blogger, therapy dog handler, and founder of the Sammy's Bundles of Hope Project. As a survivor and a thriver, Terry's mission is to shine the light of hope into the world by interviewing insightful guests from across the globe. Please stay tuned at the end of today's interview as we honor our sponsors. The Healing Place podcast is a fiscally sponsored project of Fractured Atlas. Now, here's your host and trauma warrior, Terry Welbrock. Welcome, everybody, to the Healing Place podcast. I am your host, Terry Welbrock, and super excited to have with me today Brett Loftus, and I'm going to read this, CEO of Cross North Schools and Children's Home and co-founder for the Center for Trauma-Resilient Communities. So welcome, Brett. Welcome. It's so glad to be here. Thank you for having me, Terry. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we were just talking before I hit record of all the exciting stuff we can dive into. <laughs> so talk a little bit about your roles and what it is you're doing. And yeah. Sure. So, well, the Cross North School and Children's Home is a large child welfare and children's behavioral health organization that is located in North Carolina. So most of my professional career working with children has been in North Carolina. Beautiful. One of the um, things that we do is that we provide safe places for children to live. So whether it's in one of our community foster homes or two, we have two really beautiful campuses where we specialize in large sibling groups that are in foster care and trying to keep those siblings together. And then we have a whole array of healing services um, that we use evidence-based therapeutic modalities to help kids heal from the things that have happened to them before they come into foster care. And so we're all about trying to help kids get healing through the place they live, the schools they go to, and the therapeutic services that they have. Beautiful. Yeah, no, adverse childhood experiences are just on the, you know, kabooming onto the mental health scene. And so the, the gifts you're giving these kids is just phenomenal. Well, it's, it's, it's been fun to watch science start to really translate into practice. When I was in school many years ago, we didn't really know anything about the science of adversity and trauma or really the science of resilience for that matter. We just kind of intuitively knew that the things that happened to you as a child really impacted you long-term. Um, and my, I remember 25 years ago, my thesis was around um, how different kinds of abuse impacted a child's stability in foster care and how the different kinds of trauma really related to disruptions and placements uh, later in, in their life. And, we have learned so much since then about the way children's brains work and the way that our adult brains even work. Yeah, for sure. And one of the things that we had talked about earlier was you say you have dogs on <laughs> in your community, which is amazing in that, you know, each, each um, space for the children has, has an animal there. Yeah, we have a uh, program called the Pet Nurturing Program where all of our cottages have a rescue dog there. And often those dogs have experienced some difficulty before they come to us, just like the children. And they learn to nurture each other. And what we know is that the dogs are so intuitive. They can really tell when a child specifically needs them. Um, you'll, we'll see children who are struggling and the dog will sleep outside that child's door that night. 
oh. um, of their room. And, and we just, we watch that kind of, those healing interactions that are beyond words. Because what we know is that our bodies store our experiences and our body, what uh, Bessel van der Kolk says, our body keeps the score. Yeah. And so often our, our dogs can really intuit those things. They, they sense what's going on with the child. And so they're a big part of kind of that nonverbal healing process. Yes, very, very much so. And hold on one second. I'm going to grab Max, who wants me to hold him. Come here. <laughs> Good decided, cue, Max. He decided he wanted to be up, so oh, I'm holding God. him up. <laughs> so, yes, <laughs> what, I, I, I so totally understand it. One of, the, one of the stories that comes to mind is Sammy and I were visiting with a school, and we were standing in front of a group. They had brought, I think, both sixth grade classes into the room. And so there were probably, I don't know, 60, 70 kids in there. And Sammy normally is just, she's so cooperative. She'll lay by my feet while I'm talking. If I'm, you know, talking about the therapy dog process and what we went through and Sammy going to school and la la la. And, but Sammy kept pulling me Again, and I, I was trying to give her direction to do when she's really such a, an obedient, wonderful, sweet dog. But she just kept wanting to be by this little girl that was sitting on the floor right mm-hmm. in the front. And so finally I asked the girl, you know, is it okay if Sammy sits with you? And she nodded her head yes and smiled, obviously was so excited. So I walked over in that direction and Sammy just was on her lap right next, like just smooshed up against this kiddo. And we carried on and then afterwards, um, the teachers came up to me and said, uh, that child has ex- experienced horrific loss in her life. Two, two loved mm-hmm. ones died in the last few weeks, and she's grieving horribly. Mm-hmm. And here, my dog, you know, this beautiful therapy yeah. dog, she just knew. She knew she needed yeah. to be. And just all she had to do, she didn't have to talk. She didn't have to listen. She didn't have to do anything. She just had to love her. And so, right. so yeah. yeah. Beautiful. We have a lot to learn from. We have a lot to learn from the animals. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we really want. We really want there to be a cognitive, verbal solution to everything, and and the ministry of presence, and just the healing, the the, the healing part of just being with somebody and um, sitting with them is is really important. Yes, absolutely. Which then brings us into the whole, the science of trauma resilience. I love that. And I, I would love if you, you could talk on that a little bit for me. Yeah. So, you know, some of this we kind of knew intuitively and now science is really verifying that. And so um, what we know is that our brains are placid, that they, they can change. That Neuroplasticity is such an important piece of science that we didn't know when I was in school we kind of thought people quit growing and quit changing at a certain age. And what we know now is that our brains can continue to heal over the whole course of our lives. And certain experiences really help facilitate that healing. And what we know for children is that it's just kind of, um, it seems like everybody should know this, but the science is telling us that the relationship with one positive, consistent adult can make all the difference which is why a lot of successful people, even if they've gone through lots of adversity, can point back to one teacher or one camp counselor or one coach um, or hopefully one family member or foster family who's really made that difference. And that's helping their brains process the things they've experienced and to find enough safety to move out and try some new things and maybe adventure out and, and really grow as a person. And those, those individual connections make all the difference. And then there's some other pieces. The Harvard Center for the Developing Child 
um, really gets us some good guidance around the research. And, and for some kids, it's just a plan for the future. Um, knowing that they have something that they're working toward is really important. So we work a lot with our kids on that. And another is a little counterintuitive sometimes, and it is just a sense of mastery. Uh, science is telling us that if you're really good at one thing, and that one thing can start to help develop your identity, then that carries you through difficult things and helps you rebound from some of the hard things you've experienced. And that's a little different than how a lot of times our traditional education systems work. So if we're not good at math, they give us a whole lot of extra math to do. <laughs> and if you're not good at reading, you spend three times the amount of time at reading. In reality, what the, the research is telling us is that if kids can develop a sense of mastery, that sense of identity will help carry them through the things that are difficult. And so they can become a cello player or they're a dancer or they're a basketball player or whatever it is. Um, they're an artist. Th those kind of mastery skills um, help us throughout our life and are critically important. Wow. And one of the other is just a connection to faith and cultural traditions. Um, certainly makes sense, but now the science is also confirming that when a child kind of knows where they are in sense of what the greater world, that they are not a mistake, that they're really, um, there's some intention behind who they are as a person and that they feel connected to something bigger than them. So it's not really specifically what that is, but they feel connected and that could be to their culture, to their cultural practices, or it could be to a sense of faith on kind of where they fit in the universe those things carry us through some of the most difficult times of life. And, you know, as adults, we can kind of identify with that. Beautiful. And I, you, ta you taught me a lot through there because I was unaware. I had not yet heard of that, of the mastery piece of it. And that is just makes absolute sense. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and what we used to think is that for every risk factor a child had, we had to balance that out with a protective factor. And, and, and that is true. We want to outweigh protective factors with risk factors. But what we know now is that some of those more healing-centered uh, relationships and experiences start to move the fulcrum. So you're not doing a one-for-one -one on that balancing. Um, you start to move the fulcrum and, and that those really make their, what strengths and perfect protective factors you have that much more impactful. And so when we, when we work with a kid, we're immediately asking, Who's this child connected to? How secure is that connection? And how do we, how do we foster that connection? And, and it could be with a maintenance worker or a cafeteria person. It could be with the, the people that work with our horses here on campus. Um, and how do you really further that? And then what does the child identify as something they are good at? Um, I have three boys and all three of them are very different at, and, and good at different things. And we talk about the different kinds of intelligence and the different kinds of skills that people are born with. And, and they can really identify the things that they're strong, they're strong with, what's strong in them. Um, and we really need that for all kids, especially kids who've experienced trauma. Yeah. Yeah. That's an amazing. And I love the point that you brought up about making sure that even if you have a high ACE score, which is adverse childhood experience for listeners who aren't aware, there's there's a, a score or a assessment you can take to determine based on 10 questions, which obviously there's more beyond those 10, like bullying and racism and, and so forth. But there's also the resilience fact point of it and the resilience right. score. I, I remember talking to people when I would tell them my story and 
I, I have a high ACEs score and they would say, Oh my gosh, Terry, how did you survive all that? And for years I was like, I am, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I did it. But then once right. I started to understand the resilience factor, I said, Oh my gosh, my grandma Kitty and my soccer coach and my best friend's yeah. mom. And so I had these people, yes, in place yeah. that just provided um, a sense of, of worthiness, a sense of value. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's amazing. And people think that sometimes it takes years and years and years to build those connections. And the reality is that what we know is that they're often adults who can pinpoint back to one teacher or one coach or, or one camp counselor who did something during a short period of time in their life. And that person really, their intervention made such a huge lifelong difference. And the adults don't always know. They don't always know the outcome. Um, and that's a cool thing is that when we have the opportunity to to sit and look at a child in the eyes and tell them how important that they are and how they are not a mistake, no matter what they feel like and how meaningful their life is. Um, they can really build on that and, and grow and, and do things that maybe otherwise they wouldn't have been able to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it is so true. I, I remember having a second grade teacher that didn't do very much, but, she would invite me over and I would walk a couple streets over and sit on her front porch with her. And I don't even remember what we would talk about, but I knew I would just sit with her. And she gave me a little tiny ceramic heart one time. And it just was a little mm -hmm. like Holly hobby something. Oh my gosh, I treasured that right. forever. And then my dad threw something one time and it, and not that I should laugh at that, but it, it broke. And I, yeah. I remember glue, super gluing this back together, but now it represents so much to me. And it's such a treasure, yeah. this broken ceramic heart that was given to me by this second grade teacher that my dad broke in a moment of violence and anger, but he eventually healed. And so I now look at this and it just, it represents so much and it's beautiful, but it was a very simple gift from my second grade teacher. Right. So, right. Yeah. Well, and the time that, and the time she spent, um, you have to be important if somebody's going to take time to spend with you and to let you sit with them. And and we as adults forget that sometimes that how important um, it is for us to really value that time with young people. Um, and often it's not our words that matter. Um, it is our, our choice to, to make ourselves present. Yeah. Hi everyone. Just wanted to take a minute to thank the donors uh, the sponsors of the Healing Place podcast through Fractured Atlas. The Healing Place podcast has been approved by the Board of Directors as a fiscally sponsored project of Fractured Atlas and would like to thank uh, Phoenix Fund of Blue Mountain Community Foundation for their generous donation at the trauma warrior level and then also at the friend level, Michelle Rini. So again, Thank you. If you would like to be a sponsor of the show and donate to support this program, please go to my website, terrywellrock.com, and on the top of any page, you'll find the Donate Now at Fractured Atlas icon. Thanks so much. Now back to the show. So talk to us a little bit about just the foster the foster care system in general. And, and it's, it's just the numbers are overwhelming. Yep. And what, what can people do to help? What can people, I know many feel frustrated by what do I do? Yeah. Well, that's certainly a question I've asked myself a lot. I started my 
career in child advocacy as a volunteer guardian ad litem. I was barely outside of childhood myself and um, decided I wanted to give back to kids and so became a guardian ad litem and of course didn't know much about the system and met my first clients and just saw the experiences that they had and knew my job was to go to court and speak on their behalf and to say what was best for them, um, which seemed like a simple thing at the time. And then I saw how the court system works and realized that the voice of a child is one of the last things that's considered. Uh, there's a lot of people and a lot of adults and the adults have lawyers and um, a lot of conversations about rights and those things, but not a lot of conversation about what kids need. Um, and so I made it my mission at that point to just become a better advocate. That eventually led me to law school uh, to be a professional child advocate and work as a lawyer representing children. And then I ran a large child welfare, I mean, children's law office that did all the legal representation for children in Charlotte, North Carolina. And just over the years, got to see the power of advocacy and somebody's voice. Um, and that's the thing that kids in foster care say often is that no one listened to me. Um, they told me about what happened to me and they told me about why I was dangerous and they told me about what I needed, but no one really ever listened to me. And, and now we know a lot more about helping to ask children what's happening to you and what's happened to you. Right. Um, so that they can understand how important their voice is in, in determining their future. And so that, that voice is just one way that we provide agency or a sense of power um, to young people who've been real disempowered and have lost a lot. Because um, still our system is pretty broken. Um, you know, child experiences neglect and abuse or sexual abuse. And those perpetrators or those parents and caregivers often don't go to jail. They don't even leave their home. They stay put. The child is the one that gets moved. And the child goes to often a temporary foster home or even a shelter and then to another foster home. And on average, our kids are having four or five, some 10, 20 moves before they leave the foster care system. Well, pretty quickly, a kid determines that they're the common denominator in all these moves. So it must be their fault. And as many times as adults will say, well, it's not your fault. You didn't do anything. Um, the reality is the way our system is built, it reinforces the idea to kids that it's their fault somehow. And, and so it's critically important that we really build a different kind of child welfare system. Um, that first keeps kids in their home as, as much as possible and supports that family. And, and when it's not, you're not able to do that, that children have one placement, they stay with their siblings, they get the mental health care and the healing support they need in that placement. They get to stay in their school as long as possible um, so that they can provide some of that stability and, and they can have um, as, as few losses as possible because yeah. foster care is just filled with losses and, and, and really exacerbating trauma. Right. Well, and I think you had talked about siblings are kept together in, at Crossnor, yes? Yeah. When you survey children who've exited out of the foster care system at 18, the number one frustration and hurt that they mention is losing their siblings. Oh. Um, and for all of us, as our parents age, uh, and pass away, our, our siblings are our, our family for life. Um, you may go through a divorce or a separation, but your siblings are still there. And when you lose your siblings in foster care, you've lost one of the only connections and relationships that you were intended to have for your whole life. 
And so keeping siblings together is not only their federal right, it's not only protected in law, it, it should be just best science and best practice. And unfortunately, it doesn't happen often enough. So a lot of what we do in our agency is have large cottages that sibling groups can stay together. So even a group of, of seven, eight, nine siblings can still live together in foster care. Beautiful. Well, and you made such a valid point that I had never, ever thought about before. And it really is profound that the perpetrators that cause these children harm are able to stay and their, their lives truly aren't disrupted. And yeah. it's the children's lives. So if, if a child, if you're working towards keeping a child in the home, is it a mandatory then sentence that's given to the perpetrator <laughs> for, for mental health counseling? You know, that's not the way it works right now. Um, the system right now is really weighted towards the rights of parents. And, and while that's an important thing, it really is important to protect family integrity and the rights of parents, um, it do, it's done to the exclusion of what's right for children and, and their right to, to, okay. to be able to stay in their own school, to be able to keep their pet, to be able to keep their toys to be able to have the place that they know, which is often why family members, if, if they're family members that are suitable, are really the first choice for a child to go live, and that's obviously usually best. Um, but what we know now, especially with generational addiction, poverty, and abuse, is that a lot of the extended family members are not in much better situations. And so for the 500,000 or so kids in the country that are removed, and it's not safe to live at home, we've got to do a better job about building stability and support in those, in those foster care systems. Right. Yeah. Which is what your, your work is. And now you also travel and, and educate others yeah. on, is it on the philosophies of what you're doing at Crossnor? And it's really more about um, how to build an organizational structure that is trauma responsive and built around resilience. Um, and that's, that's something that they don't really teach in school, and they certainly don't teach with most of our um, human services agencies do not have a good trauma-responsive model, nor do they have a good focus on how to build resilience. They're very much deficit-based, um, and unfortunately, a lot of our systems further traumatize the children who've already experienced such significant loss. And so the Center for Trauma Resilient Communities is about that. It's about how to build a trauma responsive culture and how to make resilience the base of everything that we do. Because as a person, what, what, what gets me through hard times is not all the hard things I've experienced. It's the things about me that are strong, the resilience factors in me. Well, organizations are the same way. And how do we reinforce the resilience of an organization and to help it understand how to not be hurt in the process of healing. Um, one thing I'm very passionate about, and I started my career as a young child advocate, um, really spending a lot of time in mental health hospitals with young children, um, working with severely physically and sexually abused children, and nothing in my training prepared me for its impact on my spirit and, to, and my body. Um, and that secondary trauma, what we call vicarious trauma, really did damage to me. And what we know is that our systems are full of really wonderful people who also enter the work with their own hurts. And if we're not careful, the work per does further harm to them as, as helpers. 
And so we're really passionate about helping to build organizational culture and community infrastructure to support the healers because we're all wounded healers at some level. <laughs> and what we want to do is to, is to help not become more wounded, but to provide structures that, that help protect us as we do healing work. Yes. Right. And, and so, so very true. And I, I'm always amazed by how many people I either have on this podcast and talk to, but the healers I meet in the world who have survived trauma in some way, or yes, that yeah. we're just drawn to it. Um, yeah. 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 I, love the, I love the meme that's out there that says, uh, the creative adult is the child who survived. Yeah. It's yeah. so true. <laughs> it is so true. It is so true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in order to be called to this work, which most of us are, are it's not, a, we certainly didn't make the choice because of finances or make the choice because, you know, somebody told us we had to do it. We all make this choice to do this work because we want to help people heal. We want to provide support to folks. We feel very much a greater calling to do this. And I'm passionate about helping to build structures that we, we don't become damaged in the process. Because one thing we know about our public child welfare system is that all too often it is staffed with people who are beyond fatigued. Um, they're at the point of burnout. And yes. what we know through research now is that children stay in foster care longer and they have worse outcomes if their workers turn over multiple times and the workers they have are experiencing burnout. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. It's just another loss in their eyes, you know, when Absolutely. Right, they've, they've lost someone else. Right. And, yeah. and, Right. I mean, to internalize that, it would just be, you would just think like a natural for a child who doesn't understand or cannot process. Yeah. Um, well, if relationships are the foundation of our resilience, trying to protect the integrity of those relationships has got to be how we're, our systems are built, but they're really not built that way. Right. Um, and so when those relationships are disrupted, it's harder and harder for us to heal. Yeah. For sure. So do you, do you utilize things such as mindfulness training with kids and um, are there therapy, different therapy modalities that are used? I know myself, I used EMDR, but I didn't come across that until my forties. So yeah. Yeah. Modalities like trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR. um, Those are even some of the work that we know through um, interactive, um, play therapy and experiential therapies, um, adventure-based counseling. We do a lot of adventure work, especially with, with adolescents. Um, it really helping to tap into our bodies, not just our cognitive frontal lobes, but our bodies where a lot of our trauma is stored. So yeah, we use all those modalities and more. Um, and we're really interested in, in mindfulness, not only for children, but also for the practitioners. What we know is that uh, we are built to respond to those people around us. And so if the adults in our lives are dysregulated and they are um, not managing their emotions well, then the children respond to that. So we work a lot with teachers, social workers, counselors, helping them to, to, to really practice mindfulness and to keep themselves centered so that they can provide more healing space for children. Um, children get it really quickly. Yeah. They understand yoga. They understand meditation. Children understand the power of breathing. It's adults that really struggle. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I know. I, I remember in EMDR in my therapist suggesting breathe. And I was like, 
Well, one, I don't know, even know how. Yeah, <laughs> and then right. healthy boundaries, what are those? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So. It's true. And, and we, we, you know, the, the reason we started the Center for Trauma Resilient Communities is to help organizations build those skills. Right. Um, and, and they don't norm, they don't just naturally have them. They have to build structures in order to reinforce that to what, you know, what we talk about embed and embody the science of trauma and resilience. Um, and when we do that, what we see is that education outcomes get better, turnover reduces, kids get healthier, faster, um, and, and the workers in the process don't get hurt. And, and that makes a big difference. Right. Right. So who are you talking to? Are you, are you, are you meeting with schools? Are you meeting with um, uh, therapy yeah. organizations? Yeah. So all the above, really, a lot of our clients are school districts um, who may come to the work saying, hey, we got to reduce suspensions or we got to reduce teacher turnover. And what they realize is that once they build a more trauma responsive culture, the kids get better faster, they stay healthier and the staff is happier. Um, so child welfare organizations, mental, mental health organizations, domestic violence shelters, all those places where you get exposed to trauma on a regular basis. Uh, think of our first responders, um, yeah. making sure that they have adequate training to help them deal with the things they experience. Because once you know about trauma and resilience, it's really, it's not massive tectonic shifts that have to be made. Sometimes it's the little things. Um, and those really are, are create healing environments and, and the outcomes for kids is just phenomenally better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could geek out on all this stuff from polyvagal <laughs> theory to brain plasticity. Yes. It's all, it's exciting that all of this is coming to the surface because it is making such a huge impact, like you said, on the educational outcomes for these kiddos. And, um, yeah. so yeah, thank you. For and, this wonderful and the work. corporate world is, is, is already surpassing us human service people. They've started to realize, I mean, Google and Microsoft and all these folks with all this money start to research effective teams and, and what makes an effective team. And they're finding psychological safety is the number one factor. Well, psychological safety is all about feeling like that you can do and say things and be your authentic self and not be punished for it and not be looked down on. And that connection with your teammates is what makes your overall team more successful. Well, that certainly makes sense, especially in the human services context, when we're dealing with really highly emotional uh, charged issues and situations and we're experiencing this it's the stress of other people who are we're, we're trying to help right yeah fantastic so any myths or facts that you would like to clarify for people oh well i'm an adoptive parent and so there's always uh myths about adoption out there um one is that it's really really expensive and that's really hard to adopt and the reality is that um there are thousands and thousands of children who are free and clear waiting to be adopted. And if they're adopted from foster care, that cost is minimal if, and sometimes nothing. Um, and those kids are great and they need homes. We, my family, we adopted a 16 year old. Um, and most people don't really think that that's an option for them. But the reality is that um, it is an option for lots of families if they just kind of open up their minds to it. Um, or, the, or people think I could never adopt three children from the same family. Um, but the reality is, is that people do it all the time. And it's yeah, a my beautiful My best friend, family. my best friend just adopted two 14 year old twin boys 
and a 10 year old girl and I love it. And we're so proud of her. And I just, Oh my gosh, she's my hero. And no diapers and right, no diapers right. and no baby formula. <laughs> Listen, baby, babies are cute, but babies are hard. Yeah. Um, and there's, and there are a lot of people waiting to adopt babies. Yeah. Um, and the reality is that we have a lot of other kids that, that are, that need to be adopted and, and are wonderful and great young humans and they need the opportunity to be able to grow. Yes, absolutely. So that's, that, that's a myth for sure. Um, and the other is that, um, you know, there's a lot of myths around about self-care right now. Self-care has become one of those things that you add to your list of things to do that you didn't get to. So now you feel guilty about. Um, and so self-care is not, a, it shouldn't be weaponized. Um, <laughs> self-care should just be a way of, should be a way of living. Um, and we should be expecting everyone, no matter their profession, to plan for the, how they take care of their most important instrument, which is themselves. That should be key in all of our workplaces. Um, and it's not right now. But um, it, and it's not that hard to do. It will increase productivity. It will reduce turnover. It will make your workforce happier and your clients happier. Um, but we have to make it a priority. Yeah. Amen and hallelujah. Yes. <laughs> so anything else that you would like to touch on before we close out no i just appreciate this so much i, I think these conversations are really important they need to happen more often um often child abuse and neglect feels overwhelming to people and so they don't want to talk about it because it's too hard they don't know where to fit but everybody has a place whether it's as a mentor or a reader at your local school or if maybe it's as a foster parent or an adoptive parent, um, everybody has a place in dealing with the crisis and it's, it is a crisis. Yeah. Um, and we need more people who are willing to invest in our young folks. Well, yeah. I mean, half a million children, that's, that's yep. one child is too many, but yeah, that's, yep. that's a lot. Right. right. It is. All right. Well, how do people, so if someone wants to bring you on board to come talk or, or reach yeah. out, how do, how do people get a hold of you? What's the best way? So the best is to go to our main website at crossnor.org. It's C-R-O-S-S-N-O-R-E.org. And you can see all of our different programs. And then if you're interested in training, there's a link to the Center for Trauma Resilient Communities. Or just Google Center for Trauma Resilient Communities and look at our faculty. And we really work all over the country. And so we're happy to help organizations when they need us. Wonderful. Well, again, I just, I thank you for joining me today. I thank you for all the amazing work you're doing. Um, yeah, it's just been, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much, Terry. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on the Healing Place podcast. And until next time, remember, be gentle with yourself. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening today to the Healing Place podcast with your host and trauma warrior, Terry Welbrock. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about Terry, her mission, and the Hope for Healing journey, visit Terry's website at www.terrywellbrock.com. Thank you for liking, commenting, sharing, and offering your reviews on our YouTube channel, audio outlets, and Facebook page. And as Terry reminds us, until next time, remember, be gentle with yourself.